Uh, it's good to be able to come together and to meet together again this morning. So would you please have your Bibles open to Colossians chapter 3. And uh, it seems it's taken a long time to get through this, but it's, uh, I think it's profitable. I hope it's profitable for you. So we've got to be looking this morning at uh, two verses, which is a sort of a decent chunk in its own right, given the content. In verse 20, the Apostle Paul says, Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. So let's just pray again in prayer and ask God's help. Father, as we look at your word, help us to be those who truly hear your word that we may receive your truth into our lives, that we may do that which you have instructed us. Father, thank you for making your word plain to us. Help us now to, in the power of your Holy Spirit to walk in obedience to what you've called us to do. Guard my words from anything which is foolish or unhelpful. But Lord, that we may take away from here that which is going to uh, be helpful in our Christian lives and that we may walk more closely with you throughout being together this morning. Thank you for our Lord Jesus, and through whose name we pray. Amen. Now, we are in a battle. If you remember a couple of weeks ago, I said that same thing. Still true. Uh, but it still needs to be emphasized. And in this section of this letter, uh, one of the main areas Paul is teaching us about is this area of family relationships. And these brief instructions do not give us all that the Bible teaches about the responsibility of wives, husbands, children and fathers. But here the Apostle focuses on a key issue that provides challenges for us. For wives, the idea of submission to a husband is often an area of spiritual challenge. Hence, even in Christian circles where we are committed to the authority and infallibility of the Scripture and the need to walk in obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ, Still not easy, is it? Still not always simple to understand and always not simple, certainly, to do. For husbands, the challenge to love our wives can also be a challenge to us. We can deal with this superficially or just mentally tick the box and say, well, of course I love my wife. I tell her on every wedding anniversary. <laughs> and uh, just say, well, that's it. You know, obviously, it just sort of it happens. The challenge for us as husbands is to give deliberate and careful thought to the welfare of our wives, to give adequate time to exploring what this means and then committing our personal energies into making it happen. Then we come to children and us men as fathers. And that's what I want to look briefly at this morning. But why is this a battle? Well, the battle may not be for us so much as what happens within our families, though that can be challenging enough. The battle for us is to preserve the integrity of our family life in a God-honoring way in the face of so much pressure within our culture to undermine and destroy the biblical models of what families should be. And the challenge here for us is to uh, be part of our community without necessarily agreeing with everything that is said and happens. And uh, the, uh, the idea of saying, well, that's okay, that's okay, that's okay, when God's word says, no, it's not okay. In more recent days, we have uh, seen much of the public rhetoric that has happened 
to has the effect of undermining the central place that families have to play in our society. And if we're looking for a conspiracy, I think here is one. For many in our culture, in the media, in our schools, in so much of the public dialogue that takes place, for those who are controlling laws and legislation, the dismantling of a biblical understanding of the family unit is a matter of conscious choice and policy. For others, just the acceptance of the patterns and models that are being presented implicit in our, in, our, in our media and culture because they don't know why they shouldn't. And so we have to be those who, particularly within the sphere of our own families, are clear as to what we are going to do and what we are going to teach our children. And so we as Christians need to think hard about how we can and teach and practice a biblical way of being families and of how to equip our children to know what the Lord calls us to be within our families and to discern the ways in which the non-Christian culture around us seeks to undermine our understanding and practice of biblical families. And that's going to require commitment. It begins with all of us submitting to God and bowing before the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We must, as a starting point, own up to our failures as human beings before God and seek his forgiveness in our lives and the strength and power to live this new life he gives us in Christ. That's our starting point. If it's not our starting point, then we are not going to succeed. It's, uh, and in terms of families, if you as a Christian choose to marry someone who's not a Christian, then you are divided right from the start and when in marriage and seeking to form a union. And so Paul here, as we, he's talked about husbands and wives, he now talks about children. More importantly, he talks two children, and I'm conscious that all ours have disappeared. <laughs> so parents, grandparents, you're going to have to take notes and then sort of share that with the kids later on. But Paul here talks to children. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Is there anything about that which is hard to understand? No? Ask your children, it's hard to do. But that's not the same thing as being hard to understand. In Ephesians, in a similar passage, he wrote, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and mother, this is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. And so the first thing that we would assert, that there must be this, uh, obviously, the authority of parents in the, in the family, but children are to obey their parents. Obedience is simple to understand, but it's often hard to do. Why is it hard for children to obey their parents? Because so much of the time it goes counter to what they want to do. Now, it may be simple things like bedtimes. It may be simple things like uh, uh, you know, not getting off the phone and not talking to their friends and what have you all the time and so forth. But nevertheless, the... Command is simple, obedience can be a challenge, but we must train our children in actually being obedience. Now there's one condition to that obedience. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul says, in the Lord, there is a higher authority, which is our obedience to the Lord. So if our parents instruct us to do anything which is contrary to the commands of God, then we need to obey the Lord first above all. Now, I've got a reasonably good memory. Now, having said that, I've got a reasonably good memory. Can you remember any time in your childhood where your parents 
told you to do something which was clearly contrary to the word of God. Stretching your memory? I mean, I grew up in a non-Christian family and I cannot remember anything that my parents said that was contrary to what God said I needed to do. Am I just forgotten? But I doubt it. And I think that if we went round and asked everybody here, can you think of something, we'd be hard-pressed. So the idea that there is an exception to this would be extremely rare in most of our families, particularly the ones that we've had experiences with. And so when Paul says here, children, obey your parents in everything, with that one little proviso, this is a principle which we need to impose and, uh, and impress upon our children. Children, obey your parents. I know you're not here listening, but hopefully your parents will be able to tell you that later. Because we find some interesting things in the scripture. Jesus had to learn to obey his parents. He says so. In Luke chapter 2, we are told that Jesus, when he was 12, went up to Jerusalem. And let me just read it. And he says, he went up to the feast according to the custom because they went up every year. But when he was 12, he went up. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. Wasn't quite home alone. It was the other way around. But nevertheless, he stayed. They left, traveled a whole day before they realized he was missing because no doubt they were traveling in convoy with perhaps other people from Nazareth that they were traveling up to Jerusalem with. Uh, safer that way, but also they assumed that Jesus was with one of the other families. Bad assumption, parents. <laughs> and you know that you check, you do a, not just do a head count, but you do a face count. And so they returned to Jerusalem and they spent three days trying to find Jesus. Amazing. And, you know, what happens? Of course, you find him in the last place you look, which after three days, and Jerusalem wasn't all that big, they found him in the temple. And what was do after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting amongst the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? If they understood Jesus, they would have known where to look first, not last. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And as his mother treasured up all his things in her heart, and Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favour with God and man. Jesus, even though I'm sure he would have loved to stay and talk more with the teachers in the temple, nevertheless obeyed his parents. So what was happening there? 12-year-old. Jewish culture, that was the beginning of being treated as a responsible adult. And so this particular time, in spite of the misunderstanding of his parents, Jesus submitted to them and went with them. Even though they did not fully understand Jesus' calling and mission, uh, and mission, as yet we are told, he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Jesus obeyed his parents. 
Later in the book of Hebrews, much later in his life, we are told in the days of his flesh, in Hebrews 5 verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him, that is his father, heavenly father, who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he had suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And Jesus now, as an adult, had to uh, submit to the will and calling of his Father in heaven, that even against every human instinct at self-preservation, he allowed the events to unfold that led to his death. Jesus could have chosen not to die. Thankfully, he didn't, because in his death was our life. But he chose to submit himself to the Father. Even in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus prayed in agony, um, you know, he asked for the cup to be taken away. But he says, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus learned obedience. And in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8, we read, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And one truth that helps us show, shows to us, is that learning obedience as children to our earthly parents helps us understand and accept our need to submit to the authority of our Father in heaven. If we do not fully instruct and guide and discipline our children, it becomes harder for them to submit to the Lordship of God and the Lord Jesus Christ later on in life. Now, it's not an automatic thing, but at the same time, they understand, yes, there is legitimate authority. In the universe, we know who that belongs to. It is God our Father. And so uh, this process of raising children in obedience and all that love and gentle um, context in which ideally should take place in our families, there also needs to be that firmness, that discipline, that setting the boundaries, if you like, of what's right and wrong and setting in mind the uh, in mind of our children that there is right and wrong in the universe and that not everything is legitimate and not everything is appropriate for us. And this leads us on to what I want to deal with in terms of the second part this morning where he talks here in verse 21 where he says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And in Ephesians chapter 6, we have a similar statement. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Well, what can we say about this? Well, to do this, you've got to be there. Right? You've got to be there. It's obvious. As fathers, we need to be present and involved in family life. Now, sometimes we know there's the exception where a father and mother may be absent because of some tragedy such as illness. That brings great challenges to the remaining parent and the wider family. But to allow the relationship between husband and wife to so deteriorate that separation takes place is to impose a great wrong, particularly upon the children. And while we know the divorce rate is lower amongst Christian families, it's still a long way from zero. So there needs to be a lot of hard work going into building the fundamental relationship, the core relationship within a marriage between husband and wife. 
And it's not a matter of feelings. The command given to us as men is to love our wives. Love is not primarily a feeling, contrary to what our culture says. Love is a chosen commitment to the good and welfare of the other person, in this case our wife. And submission is not easy, but again it's a choice. It's a choice. Does this mean that there are no feelings in marriage in the Bible? Of course not. Of course not. When we look at the biblical examples of marriage and families, we so often find so much affection and love and relationships that show tenderness and care. If you think of the, the actual relationship between Hannah and Elkanah as they uh, were, were um, presented to us in the book of 1 Samuel, and the gentleness that's there, the care that's there. There are other relationships, sometimes a bit mixed, but nevertheless, it doesn't exclude feelings. But our culture presents to us that divorce is an easy out from the responsibilities that flow from our choices. If we choose to marry, then husbands and wives have responsibilities to each other. And likewise, if we choose to have children, then as fathers in particular, that choice involves responsibilities for and towards our children. And so to us as fathers, we need to be present for our wife and for our children. Now, being absent can happen two different ways. Your husband could be in a different place through separation. Well, they could be there, but not actually engaged in the work. That's probably a greater challenge because, I mean, yeah, physically everything looks okay, but... Yeah, just, just dad's not involved. Dad's not involved. Um, distant from the kids. And so Paul uses this command to us. says, children, obey your parents. This pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children. Do not provoke your children. Now, this word is used twice. It's used um, here in... in uh, uh, Colossians chapter 3, and in the passage you read earlier in uh, Ephesians chapter uh, 6, the actual word that's translated as provoke is actually different in each place. Uh, and in Colossians, the word that we have there can be translated as stir up or rouse or make resentful, embitter, provoke, or exasperate. Now, husbands, that's not a job description. <laughs> it's the reverse of it. Uh, or fathers, rather. Uh, and in Ephesians, the actual word there is slightly different, and it says to make angry, to make resentful, to provoke, to anger. You ever seen your kids get angry? No? Amazing. <laughs> Amazing. John Eady says in his commentary, Fathers are spoken to since training is their duty. And because this peculiar sin which the apostle condemns is one to which they and not mothers are particularly liable. The government of the father must be one of kindness, without caprice and of equity and without favoritism. In John MacArthur's uh, commentary, which I found quoted, I found this particular com uh, list, of, which is just, comes from his commentary on Colossians. And he says, one can exasperate by one, there's ten things, so if you're writing down, got ten things. One can exasperate by overprotection. Never allowing your kids any liberty. Strict rules about everything. They do not trust their children and childhood despairs, and this can lead to rebellion. Parents must communicate that they trust. 
They can exasperate by showing favoritism, often unwittingly. We can exasperate by depreciating their worth. Many children are convinced that what they do and feel is not important. One way to decrease worth is by not listening. And these children may give up trying to communicate and become discouraged, shy and withdrawn. We can exasperate by setting unrealistic goals, by never rewarding them. Just imagine if somebody said to their kid, look, if you don't make the All Blacks, like, forget it, you're not my son. There are those that set those kind of goals. And then it leads to people who set goals for themselves like this. You know, if I don't get gold in the Olympics, my, wife, my life is useless, worthless. You have a distortion of the purpose and, uh, of, our, of our lives if we don't have realistic goals for our children. We can exasperate them by failing to show affection. We can be so diff- distant that we don't actually verbalise what we feel by not providing for their legitimate needs. We can exasperate by lack of standards. Uh, It's the opposite of overprotection. These children are left to their own. They cannot handle the freedom, begin to feel insecure and unloved. Anne and I, early in our marriage, when we were still in Melbourne, were invited to dinner with some dear Christian friends who had three children. As parents know... Uh, children don't always behave themselves when they have visitors. Have you noticed that? Sometimes happens. First, the oldest daughter played up until her father finally took her out of the room and disciplined her. Then, the next child, the son, also played up. And after a little while there, where Dad exercised some patience, he took him out and disciplined him as well. When they returned, the youngest daughter, who up to this particular point had been perfect in her behaviour, misbehaved as well. Well, the guy put up with it for a little while, but eventually he took her out and disciplined her as well. She came back, she had a few tears, but a big smile. Big smile. It was as if to say, my dad notices me as well and he cares about what I do. And so... Yeah, the, the lack of standards that we don't actually set boundaries for our kids and then back them up. We're not doing our kids any great benefit from that. Another way we can exasperate, according to John uh, uh, MacArthur's list, is by destructive criticism. A child learns what he lives. If he lives with criticism, he does not learn responsibility. He learns to condemn himself and find fault with others. He learns to doubt his own judgment, to disparage his own ability and to distrust the intentions of others. And above all, he learns to live with the continual expectation of impending doom. Parents should seek to create in the home a positive, constructive environment. And I think that would mean sort of identifying the things which the child does rather than the things which they don't do commending them for what they do, whether it's just good progress towards a worthwhile goal, even if it's not perfect. I mean, who of us is perfect? By destructive criticism. In another way that John MacArthur identifies, he says, by neglect. We can exasperate by neglect. David was indifferent to his son Absalom, and he failed to discipline his son Adonijah. And then, finally, in this particular list, I'm sure there's others, we can exasperate our children by excessive discipline. 
Never discipline in anger, is all he says. I don't know about you, I find that a cringe list. <laughs> I find that a cringe list. You sit there and you think, I can, I think I can tick most of them, if not all of them. In my dealings with my children, you sit back and you think, I should have been so much better, so much better. Yeah, one mistake that we can make is to think that as Christians, that by being the kind, that as Christians, that being the kind of father God wants us to be happens automatically as simply as a byproduct of being Christian. That is not the case. And as fathers, we need to consciously think through from Scripture what we need to do and uh, be able to do and to fulfill our calling to be fathers. And yeah, Paul here in, in Ephesians says, yeah, Paul's counter-instruction in Ephesians is to bring up the children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't exasperate them, but train them. Teach them, bring them up. Bring them, uh, help them to learn those disciplines of the Christian life. Help them to learn obedience in a way which is going to be positive and helpful. Now, before we finish this morning, I just want to sort of look at one part of the scriptures where we may learn a little of what active godly parenting looks like. Now, we read earlier from Proverbs chapter 1. and It says there in verse 7 of Proverbs 1, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. They're familiar words, right? But he goes on in verse 8, My son, hear my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. And the repeat of this word instruction between verse 7 and 8 connects what the Father says with this old principle that to receive instruction is going to lead us into the fear of the Lord. Also by his words he upholds the authority of the mother to the child. Mum and dad here are on the same page and both actively involved in the process of instruction. But there's one question, in case you were wondering, what do we talk about when we talk to our kids? Well, we need to be fairly proactive in that. We go through, now I'm going to summarise this because we don't have time to read the whole of the next nine chapters of Proverbs, but I would strongly recommend that you do because it's cast in the model of... Um, from verse 8 of chapter 1, we've got the first seven verses is just intro. Then from verse 8 of chapter 1 through the end of chapter 9, it's all about this, son's, uh, this father's discussion with his son. All of it. Then it switches. We'll talk about that some other time. But we also find that, the, that there is a theme presented to us. There's a theme of wisdom. Seeking wisdom with all your energy. But in terms of practical exhortation to his son, he, he counsels them against following bad companions. Be careful who you befriend and who you follow. If we get our kids to understand that, that there's not everybody is going to be doing things and leading them in ways which are good for them, we need to talk about it. We need to talk about it as parents with our children. Another area which we find that, uh, uh, just in summary, that um, happens at several places through these chapters, one through nine of Proverbs, where Paul talks, oh, sorry, Paul, Solomon talks about the child's sexuality and the godly way in which our sexuality can be experienced through their own marriage. 
and that we must have this understanding of who we are, not the denial of it like some so-called Victorianist standard, but rather the biblical expression of how God has made us and hold ourselves to that. Another area where we find uh, is commonly uh, exemplified in these first nine chapters of, of Proverbs is the way in which we actually get ahead in life is through hard work, not through deceit, not through um, um, theft or uh, embezzlement or any of those things, but through process of hard, honest work. Our kids need to hear that too. Now, we could look at a lot more in Proverbs, and I commend it to your reading. But one thing the Proverbs presents to us is a father who is proactively involved in the growing years of their children. And so they sit down with these conversations. You may find it hard to believe, but I always found there are some times when it was so hard to talk. And it's a challenge to all us, I'm sure, but we must be prepared to be bold, proactive, and address the issues which we think may be facing our kids. Listening, but at the same time, instructing so that they grow up in an understanding of what the scriptures present to us as how to live in a way which is godly. We need to help each other to be those kinds of fathers. Let's pray together. Our Father, thank you for being such a gracious father to us for listening to us when we burble on in our prayers. Father, for uh, receiving us back when we do stupid things, for showing us your gentleness and kindness, directing us, correcting us, disciplining us, but above all, extending your arms around us and loving us. Father, help us to be those kinds of fathers to our children, that we may be those where our children can look at us and see something of the character of God the Father. Lord, forgive us where we fail. Make up for our inadequacies because we fail constantly in these areas, but we seek to do that which is good. And we long for our children that they too may grow, understanding what it means to be a godly man. Thank you, Father, for your love to us even this day. And we just ask your help now through the power of your Spirit, through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.